0: Good morning again, and uh, <clears throat> as we come to God's word today, I'd like to begin by uh, telling you about a, uh, a comedy sketch, maybe some of you have seen this, by Bob Newhart, the old comedian, Bob Newhart. If you haven't seen it, go home and, and watch it. I'll summarize it with, uh, with this. Bob Newhart, you know, Mr. Deadpan, Bob Newhart, he plays the part of a psychiatrist, who uh, is is meeting with this particular woman. She comes in, they sit down, he's behind the desk, and he says to her, he says, before we get get going here, I just want you to know that most of my sessions, they don't last more than five minutes. And he says, I charge $5, uh, but if we go shorter than that, I don't make change. That's what he says. (laughs) He says, so tell me, what's on your heart today? And the woman says, well, I've dealt for the longest time with a phobia of being buried alive in a box. And he goes, oh, that's very interesting. He says, why don't you take out a notebook and I've got two words that will help you with that problem. So she gets her notebook out and she looks at him and he says, stop it. (laughs) Just stop it. She's taken back by it, and he goes, so are there any other problems that you're dealing with in your life? (laughs) She says, well, actually, there are, and she lists some of the other problems she's dealing with, and she pauses, and he looks at her, and she looks at him, and he says, stop it! Just stop it! Well, she says, I've sort of taken back by your approach to therapy and counseling here. I... I, I, you know, I, I don't like what you're saying. He says, "Well, okay. In that case, let me change direction here and and get your notebook out again." I actually, I have ten words that will help you with what you're dealing with. And so she gets her notebook out and looks at him. He looks at her and he says, "Stop it, or I'll bury you in a box." <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> it's funny except when it's not funny. And when it's not funny is when that is a summary of the way that Christians and churches and indeed pastors and their teaching approach how we live the Christian life and specifically how a Christian deals with the reality and the presence of sin in their life. Just stop it. Oh, okay. I guess I'll just stop it. There are whole uh, I call them denominations, whole ponds of Christianity, where that basically is the way that they teach their people. And of course, this creates great difficulty. I know this because this is the kind of Christianity that I grew up with, where they were very strong with Jesus as the Savior and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But we're awful in regards to equipping people and Christians how to live the Christian life here on earth. Or to say it this way, they were good at getting you to heaven, but they were terrible at helping you live the Christian life on earth. Great at justification, horrible at sanctification. And the end result of that is it leaves people either with tremendous shame or incredible self-righteousness. Now, they may not say it that way. They would couch it in terms like, you need to let go and let God. You need to surrender that to to Jesus, brother. Things like this, but not helpful. Not helpful at all. In fact, if that's kind of how you're approaching it, can I just ask you, how's it going? Because in situations like that, there's often a veneer of apparent righteousness, but like a lot of trees in the wind we've had recently, all of a sudden they come crashing down and you realize inside it's been rotting for years. So what do we say to people and pastors who teach that kind of thing? Stop it! <laughs> you like that, didn't you, in the front row? Okay, I got one person with me here. So let's stop thinking that way and let's start doing this biblically. Let's start thinking about this biblically and there's no better place in all of the Bible than the book of Romans and there's no better place in the whole book of Romans than in Romans 8 and there's no better place in Romans 8 than verse 13 which is going to be our focus today on how to do this. So Paul here is explaining now our new life in Christ, and he says this in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now if you continue to look, look what's coming next week. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god one of the most famous verses in all the bible is next week an adoption and assurance of salvation and all of that it's going to be great I hope you come back but romans 8:13 is a small but mighty verse in all of the new testament about how christians gain victory and defeat sin's presence in our life so, justification removes sin's penalty. Sanctification is the slow and gradual process of God working in our life to remove the power and the presence of sin. And that's what we're talking about today. Now, you might say, really, a whole sermon from one verse? How can that be? Well, I have in my hands here a book entitled Overcoming Sin and Temptation. It's one of the most famous books books in church history, written by the old Puritan theologian John Owen. It is about 450 pages long, and it is entirely written from Romans 8, verse 13. Listen. Now I have some of you concerned that this is going to be a very long sermon, right? And it might be, and you're going to be okay with it. So let's just quickly look at verse 12 and then we'll get into eight, 8.13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. As we have seen already in Romans, when, the, when Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about our skin and our skeleton. He's talking about our old man, the sinful us, the nature that we were born with, this propensity to sin, this propensity to delight in sin and unsavory and sort of lower nature things. We naturally want that, and we are born with sin squarely in the throne of our hearts. That sin is the Darth Lord of our life. We bow the knee constantly, and every time we sin, we are bowing the knee to Darth Lord sin. But when I become a Christian, now sin is dethroned from the throne of my heart, and Christ is enthroned in the throne of my heart, and truly now is the Lord and King of my life. I want to now please him. And so when a Christian bows, when a Christian sin, he or she is essentially bowing the knee to the old deposed king of our life. We are not living to the glory of Jesus. We are living according to that old sin nature that brought Jesus to the cross in the first place. So it's very contradictory, but it's very much a reality for all of us. This sin nature. The text here says we're not obligated to the flesh anymore. And what that means is, is that, you know, before we come to Christ, the only king that we can have is sin. There's only one sheriff in town and it's sin. And so the unbeliever views their life as being morally free. So they will hear about going to church, or they think about coming to church, or maybe that's you right now. You're terrified that if you actually believe this stuff, there's something in your life that you won't get to do anymore. And so you view it as a sort of like bondage, but I would say to you, you're the one in bondage. All you can do is sin. A Christian, by the power of God, has true freedom, which is not the freedom to sin, it is the freedom not to sin. The freedom not to sin yes but how do we do that and that brings us back now to verse 13 this small but mighty verse for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live so notice now the structure of the verse it's a comparison Two different ways of living, a life according to the flesh, a life according to the Spirit. And then two corresponding destinies. The life according to the flesh is death, the life according to the Spirit is life. And we've seen already in verses 1 through 11 that the flesh has, ter- has consequences to it. Yes, sin is pleasurable for a season. There's probably some temptation you have, you'd love to go out this afternoon and do it. And until tonight, you would think that was awesome. But it's pleasurable for a season. In the end, it bites. In the end, it hurts. In the end, it takes us away from it, corrodes us, it erodes us. Sin is that. But salvation and life according to the Spirit has byproducts as well, which Romans 8 says is life, peace, forgiveness, resurrection, eternal life. If you could choose between those and what sin has to offer, which would you choose? Which brings us now to the how, okay? With regard to sin, as Christians, not to be saved, but because we are saved, how do we fight against sin? Do we just stop it? Just stop it. No. Notice what it says. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It doesn't say... If by following some rules that your grandma gave you. Or if by your own, pulling yourself up by your own moral bootstraps and your own strength, you will put the... No, it's not that. It is by the Spirit. The agency for this is the power of God within us through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And there is a huge difference between me trying to overcome sin by my own strength and me humbly trying to overcome sin by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Here's John Owen. Mortification, which is a big word I'll get to in a moment. It just makes, means this, kill sin. Killing sin. Killing sin from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. You think about the religions of the world, and you can pick whatever one you want. There's always this little something that I'm doing in order to merit favor with God. There's always something that I do, I contribute somehow for me having, you know, nirvana or eternal life or whatever you want to call it. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is by grace, it is not by merit or effort. And living the Christian life similarly is something that I, it's not like we're saved by God's grace and then I stay saved by my own effort. It is the grace of God from the beginning to the end. It is the power of God from the beginning to the end. And this is why so much of the teaching, even within Christian circles, is so damaging to Christians who follow it. And towards the end of wanting to be a good pastor, I'd like to share a couple of wrong-headed approaches before we get to the right, the right one, or what I'm suggesting is the biblical one. So what are some wrong ways to do this? Well, here's one that's plagued the church. It's called perfectionism. And perfectionism says that it is possible for the Christian to arrive at a place in their life where they don't sin anymore. No more struggle with sin. I'm now perfect. Well, we have a lot of people in our church, and I know many of you, many, many, many of you, we have no perfect people in this church. <laughs> now, maybe we're missing out somehow. But in reality, that's an erroneous teaching. And even, you know, the Greek word here for put to death is not one time put to death and forever and never struggle. It's an ongoing, continuing put to death. We ongoingly continue to struggle until the day that we die with this propensity to sin. We never arrive at a place where we overcome it. It re- reminds me of when... A key man in my life, older man in his upper 70s, sorry if you're in your upper 70s, but he's an older man, godly man, I remember I was talking with him one time, I could speak vulnerably with him, and I, 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 I talked to him about the struggle with lust, and I asked him, do you ever get over that? And he said to me, I was down in Florida at the time uh, with him, and he said to me, it's funny you should mention that to me, I just went on a walk on the beach with my wife, I'm here to tell you right now, you never get over it. (laughs) I was disappointed to hear that. Like, really? I got to fight this? Until I'm 78 years old at least? Actually, I have to fight it till the day I die. And whatever struggle you have with sin in your life, this is an ongoing struggle and battle until we die. And then we are made perfect even as Jesus is perfect first John tells us and so this is a lifelong struggle none of us arrives in this life here's a second one uh it comes in different forms but I'm going to call it a second blessing and this is a teaching that says that we are saved by faith in Jesus but then we are to seek an experience after our salvation Oftentimes, an emotional, uh, spiritual experience that is so intense, a work of God in my life, where from that point on, I'm all of a sudden now on a higher plane, never to go back into the old ways. I'm living now the higher life. This is another way that they say it. I'm living the higher life now. Well, the problems with this is similar to the problems with the approach of perfection. It just isn't, it doesn't align with the Romans 7 and Romans 8. Where the Apostle Paul himself says, when I go to do good, their evil is right beside me. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Here's a third. This is the, uh, I'm calling it the surrender approach. Or maybe you've heard it this way. you got to let go and let God. Now that's one of those little sort of Christian phrases people roll out when they don't know what to say, Right? Just let go and let God. Now, there's a part of this that sounds right, because there's an aspect that is Christianity. When Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, that is a kind of surrendering to Jesus as king of your life. And so, part of that is true. The problem is that... When I surrender, when I go passive inside, when I just sort of sit back and say, okay, I can't do, I'm doing nothing so that God can do everything, sin is an active enemy in our life. What enemy wouldn't love it if if the other army just goes, okay, we're laying down our our weapons now? They say, great, we're going to destroy you. The text doesn't say that uh, that we are to surrender to sin. It says we're to nuke it. We're to kill it actively working to kill the presence of sin in our life. So don't buy into the surrender. Don't buy into the let go and let God. This is the old, the old Keswick teaching. Not true. Here's the last one I'm going to mention because I think it's the most prevalent one, at least in our, in, in our pond of Christianity. And that is legalism. Now I hear people use this word. Oftentimes I think they use it wrongly. Uh, Because strictly speaking, legalism is when my following of some rules, even the law of God, is the basis of my salvation. That is a legalistic approach to salvation. And Jesus had a lot to say about that to the Pharisees, and Romans 1 through 5 pretty much puts the nail in the coffin on that approach by saying, Abraham had to be justified by faith, so who do you think you are? That's what he says. And we all go, I ain't no Abraham, so I guess I can't be saved by meriting favor with God. We might call that legalistic justification. And that's the best way to view it. But there's this other part of it, which is where I think most people, what they mean by this, which is not, I'm obeying these man-made rules in order to be saved. I am obeying these man-made rules in order to please God, or what we might call legalistic sanctification. There are whole ponds of Christianity where the, the, the culture is such that the Bible says it here, but they say the line is here. And good Christians will follow, the line, follow this line over here. I remember I was, in a, I was in the service where a pastor got up and he said, the title of my sermon today is Those Dumb Rules. Those Dumb Rules. And his whole sermon was defending the long list of rules that he acknowledged that their church taught and practiced that were not found in the Bible. And so he was defending the fact that, hey, the Bible says the line is here, but we think the line should be over here and we create a safe zone for you. So you don't cross the Bible line because then we make this line over here. And he just defended all of that. Really. Are you smarter than the Holy Spirit? Are you smarter than what God says in His Word, that you need to draw a line where God doesn't draw a line? I don't know about you, but I got enough I got enough to worry about with what's actually written, much less what somebody adds on to it. You with me? And all the Pharisees here said, amen, right? We don't need to add to the list. The list is already challenging and The Bible condemns this as as an approach. Certainly Jesus did with the Pharisees. But here's Colossians 2 talking about this kind of man-made righteousness, this man-made sanctification. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And again, that's why in these circles you have a veneer of people being righteous and good Christians. But quietly, the tree is rotting from the inside out. Because the challenge, the, the challenge of sanctification is not the outside, it's what's going on in the inside. And God knew it, so guess where he put the Holy Spirit? Inside of us, where the real challenge lies. So legalistic sanctification, it doesn't work, and it leaves people either filled with shame or filled with self-righteousness because they can follow the man-made rules. And this is my background. I could share other stories. Maybe I will, as Romans continues. But here's my encouragement, especially if you come from this kind of a background, is to allow Romans 8.13 to reprogram your mind. And especially and here's the tricky part to reprogram your conscience because i find that many of these things are intertwined with our family and our you know key people in our life like our parents or our grandparents who said this is this is the way it needs to be and it's very difficult to overcome that and so i would encourage you today maybe to just quietly in your heart pray the prayer god I want my conscience, I want my mind aligned with what your word says, not what anybody else has said. Line me up right there. And I think God would honor that prayer. So maybe your first step is just to acknowledge that this is a struggle and to ask God for help. Okay, let's get into the meat of this now in verse 13. The key phrase is, put to death death. The deeds of the body. Do you see that? Now that, that word there, the Greek for the put to death, it's used 11 times in the New Testament. Nine of which is actually putting people to death. So for example, Stephen, the first martyr of the church. This same word is used to describe that Stephen was put to death. So this is, a, this is not a nice word. This is not a comfy, cozy Sunday morning word. This is a bloody word. This is a warfare word. This is a word of execution. It simply means kill it. So legalism approaches it and says stop it. The Bible says nuke it. Nuke it. And that is a very different posture towards sin. This is viewing my sin like an assassin. Cold, hard, hatred, Of sin in my life. Now you might say, that sounds sort of strong. Are you taking one verse out of context? Well, think about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we're always safe with Jesus, right? And what sermon's more famous than the Sermon on the Mount? And yet, what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? If your right eye offends you, what are you supposed to do with it? Gouge it out. How's that for a vivid? Take a sharp knife and just rip your eye out. If your right hand offends you, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. Okay, now nobody go home and like take this literally because what Jesus was teaching here was a spiritual amputation, a radical amputation of sin and the causes of sin in my life. And I don't know about you, but if, if somebody goes home and cuts their hand off in order to save their body, I'm thinking that's somebody that really wants to live. They don't want whatever disease, gangrene in their foot or whatever. They're, you know, World War II, the trench foot and the gangrene that they had in the Battle of the Bulge, these guys were having their legs amputated at the knee and up at the hip. And why would they do that? Because they were willing to give up the disease in order to live. And for us to view sin as as dangerous as any of these sins. There are some people that abuse grace and they say to themselves, well, I'm saved by grace and so I guess now since I'm going to heaven I can kind of enjoy a little bit of this stuff too. What an incredibly dangerous posture towards sin. I remember years ago I had a guy that met with me and he said, hey, I'm thinking about divorcing my wife. I've got another woman, I wanna marry her. I said, well, you can't do that. God's will is for you to remain married to your spouse. He says, no, it'll be fine. Because I'll divorce her, I'll marry the new woman, and then I'll just ask God to forgive me. What do you say to that? I say that's a guy that doesn't actually know the gospel. Because to know the gospel is to realize that it was my sin that Jesus bore on the cross. It doesn't make me want to sin. It doesn't make me think I'm free to sin. It makes me want to not sin. I would encourage us that we should think about this. Think about sin like cancer patients think about their cancer. If you're going to fight, if you're going to fight cancer, you got to hate your cancer. Like seriously hate your cancer. What if you talk to somebody uh, who had just come out of a bout with cancer? And you say, hey, how do you look back at your cancer? And he or she said this, oh, I miss it. How I miss my cancer. I remember the days when I had lots of cancer. Such freedom I felt. Those were the days. Wow, I I remember the cancer parties. They were incredible. Sure wish I could do that still. You know, to this day, many of my entertainment choices celebrate cancer. I remember driving for my chemo treatments. Those were great days in my life. If only I could have another chemo day. Cancer made me so happy. What would you think about somebody like that? you think, what is wrong with you, right? Because when you talk to somebody, we have many people in our church dealing with cancer. When you talk to somebody that has cancer, you, the fighter in them comes out. Like we see women that, you know, oftentimes with breast cancer that... You know, they come to church and they're wearing a wig or they're wearing that, that headdress, and we ought to view them with respect because that is a woman who has gone to war with her cancer. She hates her cancer, and she is willing to do whatever, including shooting radiation and chemicals into her body. Why? Because she wants to live. And the only way you get to live is if you get rid of all your cancer. And they hate the cancer. If you were to say to one of them, hey, how much of your cancer do you want to get rid of? Most of it. They'd be like, i got to get rid of all my cancer. I hate every cancer cell in my body. And I'm doing everything I can to fight against it. And that's what Romans 8 verse 13 is saying. It's saying this, Christian, hate your sin. Hate it. Hate it. See it as creating death in you. Don't coddle it don't flirt with it, go to war with it. Friends, you can't defeat cancer by loving your cancer and you can't defeat sin by loving your sin. And I wonder today, is it fair to say that you hate your sin and you wish there wasn't a single sin cell in your body? Which brings us to this old English word to summarize this, and it's this word right here, I mentioned it earlier. It's the word mortify and some of the translations actually actually go with that word. It's an old word. Why do you bring it up, Steve? Here's why. Because someday if you're a Christian, you're going to go to heaven. And you're going to meet some ancient uh, Christian of the past and they're going to be talking about, you know, what it was like to live life and they're going to say, "Hey, tell me some of the ways that you mortified sin." And if you say, "What does mortified mean?" they're going to say, "Who was your pastor? So for me to be a good pastor, you need to know this word, mortify. Like mortician is somebody that deals with dead things. And mortify is to put to death, to kill. It means kill zone, DEFCON 1, go nuclear, annihilate. Again, is this our posture towards our sin in our life? So what is this saying? It's saying this. We kill indwelling sin by the power of the indwelling spirit. Again the verse. If by the spirit we put to death. The agency of this is the Holy Spirit. Religion tries to encourage us to do it in our own strength. Just go out there and give it your best try. Do better. Do better. How many sermons I've heard that way? Just do better. Come on. You can do it. Go out there. And everybody leaves going, all right, i got to try to do this other thing now. And we heap on the guilt, and we encourage self-effort, and everybody fails miserably. Because in order to overcome sin, we need to access access divine power. Now, I say this as an encouragement to you, because you might be here today, and you've had a long-term, habitual sin in your life. You've tried this, you've tried that. It's the thing that you don't want anybody to know about. Maybe you are the only person that knows about this sin and you think that you are a victim and you think that you can not overcome it it's always going to be this way i'll never be able to gain victory in this area and christian i want you to realize you are not a victim you have the holy spirit within you and because of god not because of you there is enablement for us to overcome any sin in our life we are not victims We have God within us. Or to say it this way, if God is for us and in in us, who or what can be against us? So this is God's power at work within us. Okay, Pastor Steve, all right, get to the how. All right, time for the how. How do we do this? And what I want you to leave here today is I want you to leave here thinking about about, uh, suffocating or starving sin and stoking and stirring holy passion for God. This is how a Christian overcomes sin. You know, back in the ancient days, if, if an army came to a city and they didn't have enough, you know, power to break down the walls and to beat the city, they would just surround the city and they would starve it to death. They knew eventually they'd run out of fuel, they'd run out of food, they'd run out of whatever, and then they could take the city because everybody's dead. Uh, Q Masada as an example of that. And a similar approach is what the Bible encourages with regard to killing sin. We begin by starving it. Sin is like fire. Fire has to have certain things in order to work, which I honestly have never figured out. I am not a good Boy Scout. When I start a fire at a campfire, I just heap on the wood, and more wood the better, spray it down with, you know, lighter fluid, throw in some paper, and hope it works. That's me, Okay. Some of you know how to do it. You got to oh you got to have it this way so there's air and all blah blah blah. Okay? So <laughs> fire though, I do know this about fire. It requires it requires fuel and it requires oxygen. In fact, the more fuel and the more the more oxygen, the bigger the fire. Sin needs fuel and oxygen for it to take over our life. And for sin, again, we have indwelling sin. We have this nature that has a propensity and very much wants to be rethroned in our heart. Sin seizes upon unholy desires and opportunities brought to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil. You could call that temptation. Sin seizes upon those moments, and that is the fuel and the oxygen that allows, then, that fire of desire for sin to rise within us. And so, how do we fight it? Well, we fight it like firefighters fight fires by suffocating it. We try to take away the fuel of it. We try to kill it. Like, you know, there's many ways to kill a lion. One is just not to feed it. And it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. How do we do that? Here's a few encouragements. Number one, deal ruthlessly with temptation. Deal ruthlessly with pe- temptation. Sin begins in our minds and in our hearts. It doesn't begin on the outside of us. You can go to Vegas every day, not that I would encourage that, but simply being to pick the city like Corinth, an ancient city that was very ungodly. Christians could live in Corinth, there were two books of the Bible written to them, and not be overcome by sin because sin doesn't begin out here, it begins in our heart, it begins in our desires. And so on that level, on the inside, when I am sensing temptation, when I realize there's a desire that I'm having that I know this is not what I ought to do, that that's the point to deal with it. Because if you allow it to fester, if you allow it to take root in your heart and in your life, sin takes us down paths we never thought we would go down. That's why over the years, sadly, we've had situations where You know, some guy just like goes off the moral cliff and he gives up his family. He gives up his, his family's reputation. He gives up all his money. He gives up a life of trying to live a certain way. He gives all of that up for money or for a woman or for whatever. And you think, why would somebody do that? It's completely irrational. But sin is irrational, but to the sinner it seems perfectly logical. Why? Because their desires have taken over their life. It's taken root, it's grown up big. You have to deal with it when it's small. Like Spurgeon said, easier to kill the snake or to, to crush the egg than kill the snake. To deal with it when it's on the small rather than when it's on the big. And some of you, no doubt, right now are dealing with temptation. This flame is already an inferno in your heart. Would that you would have handled it when it was a little flame. How much easier it would be. Because now you're well down the path. And what this means is we deal radically with it. When I sense something's happening, I don't sort of coddle it. You know, think about Joseph. When Potiphar's wife came to him and said, I want to sleep with you. Here we have a, probably a beautiful woman, a powerful woman, a rich woman who wants to sleep with the servant Joseph. How did Joseph handle that? Did he say, well, you know what? Why don't we make an appointment to talk about that? I've got my schedule here, you get your schedule. No, he didn't do that. Did he say, how about if I just stay here and, you know, I think I'll be able to say no to you for a little bit longer? No, what did Joseph do? He ran. Mark Twain said that. There are many ways to deal with temptation, but the best one is to be a coward. Just run. Be radical with it. You say, I don't want to be weird. Really? Would you rather be weird or would you rather be pleasing to God? And, or maybe I said that wrong, you know what I mean. So, our church is weird enough, it's fine, okay. So for example, you're at the gym. You've been going to this gym, there's a particular woman, happens to always go the same day you go, she's always there, and she's starting to play with your mind. Not that she's doing anything, but sin in my heart. And you find yourself, you know, the imagination is being captured, and you begin to sort of imagine Certain things that you shouldn't be thinking about. And you're wondering, what should I do? Do you think to yourself, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna be around her more so that I can develop the strength of saying no? No. You cancel the gym membership and you get fat. Better to be fat and go to heaven than skinny and go to hell, right? (laughs) But it's a radical approach that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Deal with it when it's little. Secondly, follows that we make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, how would you treat cancer? View sin like cancer. If if I'm in a room and there's a vial that says, touch this and you get cancer, I don't sort of like get as close to it as I can. (laughs) I'm like running out of the room. Not only do I not want cancer, I don't want to be anywhere close to where I could get cancer. Make no provision means that I understand myself. I don't put myself in compromising situation, which requires the next point, which is this, know thyself. There are things that I struggle with that you probably don't, and there's things you struggle with that I probably don't. But each of us needs to have a level of self-reflection and awareness to know our weaknesses, because you might have experiences in your past, before you were even a Christian, that to this day is a kind of sort of weak spot for you, and you have a propensity to that particular sin in a way that somebody else doesn't. No matter what it is, know yourself. Think about yourself. Think about your life. Think about the way that you respond to things. Finally, this, for now, and I I heard somebody teach this once, and it's been so helpful to me over the years. I just share it with you. This is sort of my nuclear bomb when I, you know, like nothing else is working. Picture Jesus struggling on the cross for that sin. Bring to mind, literally, maybe a video, as best you can imagine. And what you see there is our blessed Savior, and he is just writhing in pain on the cross. And think, you know what, he's bearing that sin that I'm struggling with. And I have found, when I do that, my desire for that sin just goes away. It's helped me, I should share it for you. For your, for your blessing. All of this is summarized, though, in the extinguishing, in the suffocating of temptation and sin. Starve it to death. Now that said, that's the defense, by the way. The Bible gives us offense. And maybe everything I've said up to this point, you're like, this sounds like the legalistic churches that I grew up in. And, and indeed, they will teach things like that. What is missing, though, is what I'm about to share with you. And that is that God has given us an offense. God has given us an offense. And the offense for a Christian is loving God and joy in God and delight in God and pleasure in God. And the stoking of those holy affections for God, which can rise up in a huge flame as well, is what allows me to overwhelm the lesser desire for sin and all the little things it promises with an overwhelming desire to love and treasure God and to please him. And so the Christian then is simultaneously stifling the sin and stoking the holy desires. And the more I do of this and the more I do of this, the more able I am to overcome sin in my life. So can I ask you, how are you doing with the stifling and the suffocating? How are you doing with the stoking and the loving and the joy in God? You say, well, I'd like to have more joy in God or more love for God. How do I do this? Well, I would say we should do anything and everything that we can to increase our affections for God. And biblically speaking, these are well-known. The disciplines of prayer and being in God's word stoke holy desires for God in our life. We ignore those, and what happens to our attitude? You, you know, try it. Don't pray for a while. Don't read your Bible for a I mean, don't try it, but imagine trying it. Some of you are like, I'm going to take that advice very seriously. No, you go very long without, doing, without being in God's word and being in prayer and taking your heart and your life before the Lord. There's a corrosion that happens in our hearts about spiritual things. They don't seem quite as important anymore. And the less important these things feel, all of a sudden the more important the things of the world are. It's, it's like a teeter-totter. You know, we like to think that maybe I can, you know, not stoke this and keep my sin down. No, it's almost like this. The higher, the higher that my affections go for God, the lower my desires for anything that doesn't please God are. And by the way, you're the only service that got that illustration. It just sort of came to me right now. I was recently, my my daughters were teeter-tottering, and maybe that's why it came to my mind. So you want this to be high, and it makes this low. That might be better than the illustration I'm about to share. (laughs) The grace of corporate worship, fellowship with other Christians, serving Jesus in meaningful ways, giving generously to the poor, and God's work, biblical preaching and teaching, There's a host of other graces that pour fuel on our heart and desire for God. So are you getting what I'm saying? Okay. You extinguish the one, you stoke the other. Now here's the illustration that now in my mind is not as good as the one I already did, but if I don't do it, you're going to wonder, why did he carry a fire extinguisher up with him in his sermon? Sometimes these visuals are helpful. So here's what I'm saying. Towards sin, it's this towards God, it's this, okay? And you just blast it with this, and you, and you stoke this, and that's how we overcome sin in the daily walk with God. So how you doing with that? How you doing with that? Some of the best things I've ever read are on this subject, and I just wanna share a few of them with you uh, in conclusion. Listen to these. These say it better than I have said it or could say it. A way of life. This is sanctification. A way of life where we seek to throttle sin and crush it from our lives, sapping it of its strength, rooting it out, and depriving it of its influence. Does that sound like stop it? No. It's like, I'm in this. I'm battling. This is warrior language. How I love this quote. What then is this killing of sin? It is the constant battle against sin which we fight daily. The refusal to allow the eye to wander, the mind to contemplate, the affections to run after anything which will draw us from Christ. It is the deliberate rejection of any sinful thought, suggestion, desire, aspiration, deed, circumstance, or provocation at the moment we become conscious of its existence. It is not accomplished only by saying no to what is wrong, but by a determined acceptance of all the good and spiritually nourishing disciplines of the gospel. It is by resolutely weeding the garden of the heart and also by planting and watering and nurturing Christian graces there that putting sin to death will take place. Not only must we slay the noxious weeds of sin, but we must see that the flowers of grace are sucking up the nourishment of the Spirit's presence in our hearts. Only when those hearts are so full of grace will less room exist for sin to breathe and flourish. That's so good. John Owen. Sanctification is an immediate work of the Spirit of God on the souls of believers, purifying and cleansing of their natures from the pollution and uncleanness of sin, renewing in them the image of God, and thereby enabling them from a spiritual and habitual principle of grace to yield obedience unto God according unto the tenor and terms of the new covenant, by virtue of the life and death of Jesus Christ. That was one sentence. That's how the Puritans wrote. (laughs) And then I just so love this. John Murray. Indeed, the more sanctified a person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God the deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more his persistent, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious will he be of the gravity of the sin which remains and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. Which is why in this room right now, some of you care deeply about this and some of you couldn't care less. What determines the difference? Have you tasted truly of the grace of God? Have you seen through the gospel in Jesus the holiness of God? Do you understand the majesty of Almighty God and the reality that all of us will stand one day before him? Then all of a sudden you care about sin. And all of these and everything I've said here explaining one small but mighty verse. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I'm looking out at a group of people that I think very much want to live. And I'm with you. I am with you. So let's go to war with our sin. Amen.